another very exciting episode happening this week on the Ocean Pancake Podcast, and that is part two of my interview with Philip Opperman. We last week talked all about his shark conservancy work and what it's like living and working in South Africa, and today is a continuation of that. We start off with some of his thoughts and experiences with great white sharks, what he thinks about chumming, as well as the scientific research to back it up. We then continue on to how to get into the conservation era, even if you're not a marine biologist. So Philip actually came from a communications marketing perspective, and he talks all about how you got to be a brand and how you actually can get involved in this space without having the marine biology background. We then continue to go on to talk about money and what it's like actually working in conservation and what that means for your finances. For all of you guys who are interested in going to university or getting into conservation, this will be very valuable information for you. We talk about volunteerism and eco-tourism opportunities and whether they're worth it or whether it's worth sticking to the traditional university route. Either way, we talk about investing into yourself, investing into the future, all for helping our planet. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Let me know if you have any questions. Also, do not forget to check me out on the social media. We have Ocean Pancake Podcast Group on Facebook. We have oceanpancake.com where you can find all the show notes and all the information we talk about. And then of course, my name is Kat and I'm Vegan Diver Cat on YouTube and Instagram. That is where you can talk to me, hear from me and all that other jazz. Every day there's a new news story about the crisis facing our ocean, whether it's the plastic issue, overfishing, pollution. If the oceans die, we die. Fortunately, we have plenty of environmental activists, marine conservationists, and eco-warriors who are out there every day fighting to protect our oceans and our Earth. On the Ocean Pancake Podcast, we're going to be hearing from some of them about how to decrease our environmental footprint, go plastic-free, participate in ocean conservation, cleanups, and even maybe some marine science. So, welcome to the Ocean Pancake Podcast, where the goal is sustainability and living a turquoise life. My name is Kat Andreskova, and I'm your host today. Let's get into this week's episode. So here you have Philip Opperman and Kat Andreskova talking all about great whites and working in conservation. I was just going to ask if... Um, uh, you've seen a great white without a cage like is that, is that no it's it's on my list i'm working on it but it's it's really hard um even though we have probably the highest density of white sharks um in all of uh, definitely all of africa here it's really hard to actually see them um even the white shark tour operators they have to chum the waters for mm -hmm. hours for the to attract the sharks the sharks to arrive so you can imagine that seeing them on just a regular dive here on any reef that we have is extremely rare so i wish what do you think about the the chumming of the waters to attract the sharks do you believe in the people who say that that has um, created the increase of shark attacks in the past few years um no look there's no evidence for that if if they had like scientific evidence for this um mm -hmm. super but there is no frame of reference 
chumming of the white sharks is very controversial. And the reason that it's controversial is um, simply because of the well-being of the shark and of sustainability towards fish and fisheries. Mm -hmm. So one of the arguments made against chumming is that sharks would be uh, being provisioned. So that means that sharks would actually feed on the chum. Yeah. Which, if the tour operator does his job properly, is not actually happening. If the tour operator does his job, the chum consists of very oily, very little pieces that are put in the water. And um, this is not big enough or interesting enough for the shark to actually swallow. So he's not going to change his feeding pattern mm -hmm. when he does that. And another reason that it might be controversial is, as I mentioned, the... Uh, effect that um, chum has to be produced right so people yeah. would buy a lot of fish to produce the chum so yeah. that means that you know you increase the consumption of fish which is one of the things that as a conservationist you try to actually avoid true right but now there are two operators out there um, one of them is for instance marine dynamics who i think do a fantastic job because they try to get chum, they try to get fish that is um, bycatch. So they don't really go for a fish that has been fished, especially for this purpose. They go for mm -hmm. bycatch, which is much more sustainable. And they also make sure that their chum is small enough so that no consumption is actually happening and the shark doesn't get provisioned. I was doing some research about it, and indeed, just like you said, I didn't find a single paper or any scientific evidence that there was correlation between um, shark feeding and uh, shark attacks as majority of the shark attacks have happened in places where they don't have feeding while in uh, mm. countries where they do feeding, there's been no shark attacks. Um, most, yeah. Mostly. Now, <laughs> now all, this, all this data, it's always a bit tricky. Mm. All this data is, um, you know, you have to compare what sharks have been exactly. attacking people. So in, in areas like here, they go for white sharks. Um, they also attract the bronze whaler sharks. Uh, so potentially, if there was a correlation, you would also have an increase of attacks through bronze whaler sharks, which hasn't been the case. And in other places, they don't feed at all, and there you get attack, attacks by um, ray reef sharks or tiger sharks or bull sharks, which yeah. are not even in the picture. So they don't even have anything to do with that. With the top rates here yeah so you always have to look from it or add it from a different perspective and i think um i think it's just it's very emotive this whole discussion is very emotive as soon as there is one attack everybody goes crazy yeah well it is it would be a pretty terrifying thing to to actually get attacked by a shark <laughs> yeah but you know people here in, in hans by and in hermanos where i am people swim all the time people surf all the time I mean, they're in the water with a shark every single day without really knowing it. Well, all and of us, if we get into the water, it's basically guaranteed there's a shark who can probably see us or know we're there and we don't know about them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know what they say about a shark and his ability to smell a drop of blood, blood of an, an Olympic uh, swimming pool or Olympic-sized mm. swimming pool. Right. So they are very, very sensitive to our presence and they know where we are mm -hmm. and most of the time they know who we are and they know we're not right so yeah and we only had two fatal attacks in south africa in all of 2017 which is if you think about how many people go swimming every single day it's really a testament of 
how Very good sharks are with that perception. So we were talking about the pros of shark conservation, but you also said, or general conservation work, and you said uh, that it's also very important to talk about the negative aspect. So I was wondering if you could share um, what what have you found is the most challenging or negative aspects of working in conservation and trying to um, kind of help the oceans? Mm. So there's two perspectives. There is my perspective and the perspective of a scientist, of a young scientist or conservationist who wants to get into the field. Mm -hmm. So I can mostly speak about my perspective. Um, but I also made some observations with the colleagues and volunteers and interns. So I've, I've kind of have like a two dimensional way of thinking about things. But from my perspective as a communication specialist, um, one of the biggest challenges really is just to find a job mm -hmm. because there's a lot of people out there who have a background in communication or in marketing and they have worked in the industry for a very long time and they now understand uh, and realize that they want to do something that has a bit of more positive impact they want to do something that gives them a little bit more hey than the job they've had before because really yeah. if you you know if you work in advertising after 10 years you're burned out if you just want to get out of there and mm -hmm. you want to do something that has more significance so you look out you find um, options like working in conservation and then all of a sudden you have a lot of people and a lot of competition um, and with that comes the fact that a lot of organizations don't really understand that it's good to have a specialist they, they think they can do everything by themselves but if you think about a big company they have huge departments of people who do nothing else in communication that has a reason Mm -hmm. yeah, because those people are specialists and they have much more leverage. Now, if you are a NGO or a non-profit, non -profit, you don't necessarily have any money. And the money that you have, you'd rather spend it on the fundaments of the operation rather than on something that is supposedly, I guess, expendable. Mm -hmm. All right, so it's really tough to find a job. Yeah. yeah, and if you do, if you do, you can just assume that you're largely underpaid. Um, so that's the financial sacrifice that you'll have to do, I think. Now, from a scientist's point of view or a conservationist's point of view, there might be more opportunities out there, but there, I think the challenge is even harder because there are more. There's so many people applying for the same job and the first time you will be volunteering a lot and you won't make any money or the country you might even have to spend a lot of money to do the volunteering work for the reasons that I mentioned earlier so it's a lot of time a lot of money that has to go and you have to kind of see it as an investment an investment in yourself what is the difference between university and what you're doing as a volunteering position? There's no difference. Mm -hmm. University is an investment. It's an investment in education. Volunteering is an investment. It's an investment in education and skills developments and experiences that you do. And you have to, you have to really treat it as such. So I don't be scared to invest. Yeah. Time and money. Of it. Yeah. No, yeah. I think that's really great advice um, for people who wish to start working in ocean conservation is invest the time and money. Uh, and as, like you were saying, you know, 
make sure that you can provide some sort of value. So why not do an extra course, do a little bit of marketing if they're, you know, specialized in science or if you're a marketing expert, go read some books. There's plenty of information out there now which can give you a heads up or at least, you know, show show the people who are picking the jobs that you are interested in the topics and that you have, you know, gone above and beyond just the basic kind of uh, application and why yeah you want to work there yeah that's 100 percent correct Kat. i mean look at the end of the day you have to treat yourself as a brand mm-hmm. um at one <laughs> point you might apply for a grant you might apply for um for a postgraduate you might apply for different things and whenever you apply whenever you put yourself out there you are competing with others you are a brand now you have to treat yourself as such you have to you have to have your own website. You have to be on LinkedIn. You have to do all the things that make a difference, right? It's a very, very tough and fierce competition out there as a scientist and as a conservationist, and you have to make amends for it. You have to. Um, so getting that extra piece of education, that extra volunteering opportunity, um, whatever it might be, collect as much as you can. But even then, even if you're very, very good, you're not guaranteed to get a very good spot, a very good job. Yeah. And it's, it's really tough, to be honest. Um, and it's not well paid as well, eh? Nope. <laughs> no, money is definitely not the, the driving force behind most people. No, who are working you have to be passionate. Passionate. Yeah, you, absolutely. You have to be passionate for it. And yeah. I mean, the reason I'm here, the reason I did almost five months of volunteering with no pay in South Africa is well, a, because I could afford it. (laughs) I did save up a lot of money to be able to do it. And B is because I was really passionate about it and I wanted to make a change and be part of something more significant. That's well, I applaud you. That's, that's incredible. And I'm so happy for you that you did now get the paid position and now you get to go on and enjoy the sardine run and who knows what other adventures you're going to be going on next year. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I did want to add just one more thing in terms of the, the negative aspects of working in con- conservation. And it's really, I think, being frustrated with a lot of the world, uh, being frustrated oh, yeah. with how, you know, governments are spending money and, uh, you know, the plastic crisis now that's truly everywhere and seeing seeing people share the photos and videos on Facebook and kind of feeling helpless. Mm. And I think it's important for us to remember there is a lot of us who feel that way, um, but that, you know, every little helps. <laughs> yeah. And one thing that I learned here, and I think it's a very important lesson, um, is that a lot of the things that you perceive as a downside, you can turn them to something positive. As a little example, here in South Africa, there are laws that prevent fishermen from fishing more than one shark per day. So you've got quotas, Mm -hmm. but they are still allowed to fish the sharks, except for the white sharks, by the way. So of course you can be frustrated and you're trying to do your best to protect the sharks and you're trying everything, um, you know, to to make them understand how important the role of the sharks are, but they still continue fishing. Um, fishing is a very important part of the culture and in many parts of the world fishing for sharks has become something really important either for nourishment or for um, leisure and what they did here is um, so one of 
the things that we did, for instance, is that we would get the fishermen together and we would educate them. So if you have to fish, at least fish in a way that is sustainable, at least fish with safe catch and release practices, teach them what they need to know, teach them how to do it in a way that doesn't harm the sharks more than it needs to, and get them on your side. So now what happened is that we have a fishing club that we work together with. They're super, super um, engaged and highly motivated and driven to help us with our research. And whenever they go fishing, at least once a month, we actually join them with our um, tagging equipment and we use them as important, I call it research resources to get oh, the sharks out of the water, mm, to put the tags on the sharks, throw them back in. So this way we can get even more data and we can leverage something that previously you would think is something extremely bad for the shark. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's, that's really great. I was on the website actually, and I saw um, one of the things which said shark hero or sponsor a shark. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I was can... wondering for the people who can't potentially come out there and actually see all this work or, you know, get in the water and snorkel. Um, could they do something like that, which is like sponsor a shark or how does that work? Yeah, absolutely. So we have different ways that you can contribute to our research um, if you can't be on site. One of them is that you can name your shark. Mm -hmm. um, so any of the sharks that we catch here, you can name it and you can donate a specific amount of money. And then whenever we would get a recatch of the shark or whenever we find the shark somewhere, you would get information on what the shark's been doing, how he's progressing, um, how big he's become, etc. You um, can become a shark sponsor, so you can spend a little bit more money on the shark, maybe contribute enough so that we can get an acoustic tag, and then you'll get much more information on the shark. Um, so, I mean, look, we don't, we don't really ask for anything. We're happy with any contribution, so if you can only give $5, that's fine if you can give 500 even better. <laughs> yeah. so there's, there's always yeah, going to so, be ways to spend the money, <laughs> isn't there? Oh, we have, we have so many, so many different um, research activities going on and so many ideas of what we could do and how we can improve our work. Um, really, every cent makes a big difference to, to us, to be honest, yeah. It does indeed. Um, yeah. Well... Thank you so much. I just have one last question uh, before cool. we kind of wrap up today. And this is um, really from, from your experience and, you know, from all the diving students you've worked to, to the places you've traveled and scuba dived in, and now um, your experience in South Africa with the Shark Conservancy. Um, what would be one action that you would recommend for people to do um, to make a change in their own life that could help rehabilitate the oceans and the planet. So what one thing would you recommend everyone does um, to kind of help our oceans? Oh, that's a really tricky question because mm. I can understand, I can honestly understand every single person who is living in a major city um, and is caught in, in their own ways. Um, if you mm. have an abundance of water, it's natural that you might just use more water 
even yeah. if you've traveled, you come back home and you're like, oh, it's so nice and you're so grateful. It's so nice to use more water. Now I can finally take a shower longer than two minutes. <laughs> so um, it really, it's completely up to what your um, possibilities are. I think probably the most important thing is, is plastic and single-use plastic and all and just being a bit more aware of, of what you buy and why you buy it. And if it's really, really necessary to have that, for instance, if you're from Munich or any other German city, to be honest, or a lot of places in all of Europe, do you really need to buy water from the supermarket? I mean, tap water is absolutely fine. There's absolutely no difference. Um, in, on the contrary, in Germany, tap water has been deemed as one of the best waters to drink, much better than bottled water. And as we know nowadays, we even have microplastic and bottled water. So there's not a good, there's absolutely no good argument to drink bottles, still water, for instance. So just be a bit more aware of what you're consuming. Um, look, I, I eat meat. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie to you. I'm not a vegetarian yet, but I'm much more aware. I'm much more aware of how much meat I eat. And do mm -hmm. I really have to eat a burger every day? No, I don't think so. Maybe I can mix things up a little bit more. Just question yourself whenever you do something. Just question yourself and ask yourself, well, is this necessary? Is it really necessary? And what impact has this on the environment potentially? The problem is not everybody knows what impact it has. That's true. That's so, true. And that's where I education think, comes in. <laughs> yeah, that's where that's why we're here, right? I mean, that's our job. We have to we have to tell people. Yes. And um, for yeah. those of you guys who, you know, want to eliminate using uh, plastic bottles and things like this, but simply don't like drink, drinking out of your tap. I know there's plenty of people like that. There are many alternatives as well. You can get filtered water bottles, which clean or even make your water taste nice. Um, in terms of what was the other thing you mentioned? Oh yeah, uh, single use. the single-use plastics. There are so many resources out right now where you can um, find alternatives for just about anything. Even from cling wrap, you can get these like cool wraps made out of wax, which you can reuse multiple times. Bags are an easy one. And of course, um, yeah, everything's going to be included in links down below that you can check out. And um, yeah, if you guys have any questions for Philip, uh, please let us know. And I'm sure he'll potentially be back on another episode of the Ocean Pancake podcast to talk about the next step of his adventure and his conservation work. So yeah, once again, Philip, thank you so much for coming on today. Is there any kind of last words you'd like to share with uh, future marine conservation people? <laughs> I guess hearing about the true facts in conservation would be disencouraging for a lot of people. Um, it is frustrating, it is hard, salary isn't good, um, but you do it because you're a passionate person and because you're driven and because you really wanna make a change, a positive impact as most people would call it. So yeah, there's a lot of adventures waiting out there for you. you it's never gonna be boring, you'll be out in the open um, see, you'll be, you'll be fighting a, a war that can be won. Um, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be an incredible experience. And I can just encourage people to get out there and to do it and to see what it's like. And then they can still decide on whether or not they want to live that life. But I think once you've started it, you might just keep with it. 
Yep. Yeah, I can't imagine going back to, as you put it earlier, uh, to the real world or the real job. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Philip. Welcome. Thank you for having me. No problem. Once again, Philip, for coming onto the Ocean Pancake Podcast, and so sorry that it is about a year late, but I truly appreciated having you on, and I know you have been up to some amazing things since then, so very happy to chat anytime. The Ocean Pancake Podcast is now back. It's going to be publishing episodes every two weeks. I have loads of incredible people lined up for you guys. We have some photographers. We have some coral restoration experts. We have some turtle people. So make sure to stay tuned. Of course, all the information about this podcast is available on the website www.oceanpancake.com. Dot com so head on over there also if you have any questions queries make sure to check me out on instagram and youtube my name is vegan diver cat and that is on both those platforms super easy as well as lots of things on the other social medias such as myveganexperiment.com and the facebook group ocean pancake basically there is so much stuff out there free resources if you want to help the ocean or join the fight. So join the family, keep up to date with these podcasts, and yeah, I would love to hear from you. Let me know what you think and who you would like me to interview next. So thank you so much for being here with me today, and I will see you next time. Of course, I cannot forget to shout out to the amazing Graham Mose, who is the musician, the fantastic human being behind the music. So check him out, Graham Mose Music. He does the funky beats, so make sure to check him out. Or if you're in Brisbane, you can probably see him live. So go do that. Bye, guys.